Welcome to the 310th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I discuss COVID-19 and public health in Vietnam with anthropologist Martha Lincoln. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 14th, 2021, there are 4,048,942 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Vietnam reports 132 deaths from COVID-19 the nation of Cambodia reports 953 deaths from COVID-19, and Thailand is reporting 2,847 deaths from the disease. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Hong Kup. Thi Nguyen was a bridge between new Asian immigrants and the greater Sioux City community. It was written by Earl Horlick and appeared in the Sioux City Journal October 11th, 2020. Even though Hong Kup Thi Nguyen's health had been fragile for some time, her hospital stays always generated notice. We usually don't see patients get that many visitors, hospital staff told Tuyen Tran after 10 to 15 well-wishers came to visit. Hong Kup must be a very important person. That was an understatement, said Tuyen, who had been friends with Hong Kup for years. Hong Kup was very well respected in Sioux City's Asian community, Tuyen said of his friend. She was respected for her kindness and her knowledge. Hong Kup died May 6, 2020, of complications from COVID-19 at Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center. She was 87. Hong Kup was born April 11, 1933, in a community about 50 miles south of Saigon, Vietnam. She earned a bachelor's degree from the University of Saigon and a master's degree from Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. After returning to Vietnam, she earned a doctorate. At the time, Saigon fell to communist forces in 1975. Hom Kup was working as a teacher for the Southeast Ministries of Education in Malaysia. Immigrating to the United States in 1981, Hom Kup arrived in Boulder, Colorado, before beginning a career at the University of Iowa's bilingual center. Eventually, she came to Sioux City, where she worked for nonprofit agencies, including Lutheran Social Services and the Mary J. Treglia Community House. Specifically, Hong Kup provided translation services in Sioux City for Vietnamese immigrants who spoke little English. Hong Kup did this for free, Tuyen said. All a person needed to do was ask for help, and she'd do what she could. This help extended far beyond translating documents and papers. 
If a person had marital problems, family problems, whatever, she'd give you advice, Tuyen said. According to community activist Flora Lee, Ham Coop helped Vietnamese immigrants relate to Western culture while giving Sioux City residents insight into Asian culture. Ham Coop served as that bridge, Flora said. She understood things from both perspectives. A single woman, Ham Coop often spent holidays with Tu Yen and his family. Ham Coop was friends with my mom, and they'd go to Sioux City's Fomon Buddhist temple together, Tu Yen said. Plus, we'd invite her over to Thanksgiving dinners and for our 4th of July cookouts. Long after her retirement, she continued to volunteer her translating services. I thought you retired, Tu Yen would say to her. She'd say, no, I'm too busy to retire. In 2016, Homkoop was among the Siouxland leaders honored for their lifelong advocacy. A sculpture of her by artist Mark Avery is now a permanent part of the Martin Luther King Transportation Center. In my country, the teacher is not only respected by the student, she's also respected as a member of that community, Homkoop said in 2005. Homkoop was such a humble lady and was honored by the recognition, Flora said. I understand that she would have lunch with her friends at a downtown restaurant and then take them to see her sculpture because she was so proud of it. Although they spoke on the phone occasionally, Flora said the last time she saw Homkoop was at the 2019 Woman of Excellence Banquet. When Homkoop was introduced, she received a standing ovation, Flora said. Nobody was more deserving of recognition than Homkoop. People may remember her as an advocate for Sioux City's Asian community, but she was much more than that, she added. Homkoop was an advocate for everybody, regardless of who they were or the color of their skin. The obituary of Homkoop T. Nguyen from the Sioux City Journal, October 11, 2020. Okay, we're going to turn to the conversation for today. This is one that I've been really excited about. Let me introduce my guest to you, Martha Lincoln. Martha Lincoln is assistant professor in the anthropology department of San Francisco State University. A medical and cultural anthropologist, she has commented on the social and cultural dynamics of the COVID-19 pandemic frequently over the past year, including in opinion essays in Nature and The Hill. Martha Lincoln, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Scott, thanks so much for inviting me. It's my pleasure. So we have many issues to talk about today. You've been very active through this time in your scholarship. And first of all, though, I want to ask you, starting out the way I generally do, if you could tell us just where you're calling in from and pandemic situation there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm in Oakland. I'm in Alameda County. And I want to say we've been really fortunate in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, for reasons that I think can't necessarily be reduced to our quite proactive public health officials, but that was a big part of it. We had the earliest shelter in place order in the country. That was the middle of March last year. And my university, in fact, the entire California State University system shut campuses really quickly as well. Um, we've remained online, we'll be online in the fall. Um, we've seen really good adherence to masking requirements, to physical distancing requirements. We've seen really good acceptance of vaccination. Um, and so at this point, as of last week, we were approaching zero deaths, in fact, in the greater Bay Area. 
And that is now, I think, starting to be a slightly different picture because the state reopened in um, the middle of June. And so what we're starting to see is what the CDC is calling a Delta variant hotspot in Alameda County, where I'm based. So it's, I mean, that's concerning, of course, but broad strokes are that we are doing really, really well here. We've been very lucky. When that kind of a announcement is made about a hotspot there in Alameda County, then are people, is that evident on the street? I mean, you see a change in behavior, mm. masks back out. Is it is it sort of discernible in that way or not? Um, that's a great question. I would say one, I'm not out on the street that much. I am out a little bit more than I was um, over the past year, but we're in a sort of a funny area. It's not very densely populated. Um, it would be a little hard to say, I think. And I also don't think that that news item has gotten a ton of play, even though, you know, for people who are paying attention to public health, like that is a red flag. But I'm not sure that we're seeing behavior change here yet. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a strong memory or association that you have of the pandemic. I've been asking guests to this and I realize it's a really challenging Question. It is a hard question. It's a very hard question, in part, I think, because, um, you know, for middle class people or academics, um, there's been a lot of sameness, right? So a lot of um, my sort of most poignant memories of the pandemic have been very subtle, personal shifts in perspective, weird dreams, um, like political issues starting to appear different to me. Um, stuff that's really kind of hard to narrate in like a pithy anecdote. But I did think of one thing that I would speak to, which was right at the beginning of the shelter in place order. And I think maybe beginnings are a little easier for us to remember than the long unbroken sameness of um, being at home and struggling with the news. Mm. But I, you know, I can't quite remember if it was the day of or the day before or the day after, but it was like right around the time that things were starting to close down in our area. And I thought, huh, wow, you know, it's it's good that I've been shopping a little extra, but I we, we need some fresh things. We need some eggs. And for some reason, I was like fixated on the container of eggs that I was going to buy. And I ran into, um, I guess it was like a grocery store that I don't really frequent that often. And I was looking and looking and looking for the eggs, right? And as I was moving through the supermarket, it was becoming more and more clear that things were just gone, like everything was gone. And people had not really started wearing masks very much yet, but there were a few people in masks. And at that point, because there had not been a national conversation about the importance of masking, I think that there was just kind of an ambiance of dread with the like picked clean shelves and the scared people in masks. And I couldn't find the eggs. I was like, where the hell are those eggs? And finally, I came back around to where they were supposed to be. And I realized they're all bought and all that's left is the kits that people use to dye Easter eggs. And it really, it was like this sort wow. of like very domestic mundane moment, but like all horror movies, there is that kind of domestic frame and then something very exceptional and strange taking place. And, you know, I realized that um, there's something very capitalist about being scared of an empty supermarket. Sure. But it really did, like that really stuck in my craw. I remember that for a long time. Um, maybe more happily, I think getting vaccinated was really big. That was a much more pro-social, happy memory. 
even as the vaccine is not the solution to all our problems, like it was very nice to see all the neighbors it was just down the street at a pop up, you know, being like served with the vaccination. That was very joyful. That was in a in a group setting. It wasn't a group setting. It was in a church parking lot. And I think wow. there must have been federal funding because like the Forest Service was there. FEMA was there. The Oakland police were there. It was like everybody was there. And, you know, we didn't even need anything. It was the Johnson and Johnson vaccination. So we didn't even need to sit for 15 minutes. We were like, please come sit. And like all these like rangers offering people water. It was great. It was really wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing both of those. I really hope and I'm sure it's happening that someone's going to write some, maybe make make a film would be fantastic, um, but certainly write a book about the parking lots turned into vaccination centers, which also turned into these incredible meeting spaces. I mean, in some ways, I think it's mm-hmm. the equivalent of the, the Times Square photo of, you know, uh, it was VE day or VJ day, you know, with the ticker tape and everything and it's sort of iconic. Totally. And, and I'm he, people describing totally. those vaccination sites almost that way. Like it's the first time that maybe they didn't hug a lot of strangers, but there were a lot of uh, bumping and high fiving going on. And, and the way you described it. Yeah. yeah. A real feeling of like the war is over, even though obviously. Yeah. You know, and it I wasn't hate the a war and, and it's not over yeah, right neither. But there was yeah. that joyful feeling of camaraderie and like yep. seeing our neighbors who we haven't seen that much. Like it was, it was like that. It was good. Before we come to COVID specifically, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your previous work and you published a book titled Epidemic Politics in Contemporary Contemporary Vietnam. And I, I wanted to, so we're talking partly today about the experience of COVID in Vietnam, which I know is putting you on the spot because you're in Alameda County and not there in not in Vietnam, but still as an expert, I wonder if you can ground us a little bit and start with that book and talk about just what public health means in Vietnam, the structures mm-hmm. of it. Um, any time frame you want to pick up, you know, I it's such a complicated history. Yeah. And I saw the way you structured the book is a really interesting way to structure it. So I'm, let's leave it as an open question to talk about that kind of public health trajectory of Vietnam. Okay. Um, let me try to bracket my comments tightly because you're right, it's a huge topic and um, the history is very, very interesting. But um, yeah, let me just say that, first of all, the book is coming out in December from Ivy Taurus, which is an imprint of Bloomsbury, really happy to be working with them. They're very Asia focused. Mm-hmm. Um, Congratulations. And, oh, thanks so much, yeah. Um, it's really a book that is written for a more general audience, not a strictly Vietnamese studies specific audience. So I do try to make that history like full and accessible and not too, um, too much like inside baseball. Broad strokes of the history of public health in Vietnam is that um, while there was medicine and very interesting medical traditions in the pre-colonial period, I think something more like what we would call modern public health arrives with the presence of the French. So that's in the late 19th century, um, mid 1880s. And the infrastructure that the French establish is very um, focused on the French and on serving you know, the colonial population as such. There's very little made available to, um, to Vietnamese populations. And so, um, that notwithstanding, Vietnamese actors over the course of history are very, very agentive about taking medical 
resources and taking medical education from the West and incorporating it into their existing medical traditions and practice. And so when the French finally are ousted, and this is in 1945, they leave behind really a vacuum of medicine and public health. They've trained very few Vietnamese health professionals and they've left very little in the way of like a built environment. Although what they did leave behind is quite fascinating. Um, separate story. Um, the revolutionary, you know, the, the revolutionary movement had been very interested in medicine and made medicine a big ideological focus and also a very practical focus in their efforts to, um, to build a healthy, strong fighting population, right? Um, and so when they assume power, when the Viet Minh consolidates power and takes the state, um, they get right to work building a quite um, ambitious public health infrastructure that they describe as a vast pyramid, something that will reach all the way down to the grassroots, such that aspirationally at some point in the future, it's imagined that everybody will have a healthcare provider in their immediate catchment area. And while that was perhaps not delivered ever quite in practice, the data that we have and more in a moment maybe about the data, but the data that we do have from 20th century Vietnam, you know, over the socialist period, 1945 to 1986, suggests amazing leaps forward, like really revolutions in public health outcomes as a result of mass mobilization, education, and the training of like lay health workers, like barefoot doctor type providers. So, um, what that actually looks like on the ground is totally fascinating. And like the cultural politics of, you know, socialist medicine in Vietnam are totally fascinating and they remain influential to this day. And just to, to follow up on in, in one part of that, the disruption of war, which I guess one could say that war is a disruption which lasts decades there. Mm -hmm. So, so it becomes a norm, I guess. Do you see significant, like, how does the healthcare system change during that time? I mean, you got two countries. You know, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. even tracking that as a, as a researcher must be incredibly hard because you're pulling from different data sets. And, and again, I know it's impossible to ask you to summarize all of it, but I am interested, like, what kind of bifurcations you see during that, during yeah. that time. And, and then a closure, I guess, again in 1975 and the creation correct. of something new. Correct. Yeah, totally correct. And that's such a good question. Um, that in itself would be like the frame for a book, like how have the um, health journeys or trajectories of the different um, pieces of Vietnam looked over history. I would say, um, first of all, I'm, I'm really more of an expert on North Vietnam. Um, Vietnamese studies is a little um, regional in that way. So I, I hesitate to speak comprehensively about South Vietnam, but what I understand and what's published suggests that South Vietnam was a basket case during the American War. Um, really, really, really suffered terrible impacts from um, the physical impact of war, um, mass population movements, um, the resurgence of diseases like cholera. North Vietnam, obviously also the population suffered terribly under bombing, chemical defoliants, which I think were probably more used in the South actually, but. Um, you know, civilians absorbed a ton of the impact of the war in North Vietnam as well, but there, I believe 
that it's fair to say that their health system was more resilient and better capacitated to care for soldiers and civilians over that period. So then in, in more recent times, I know you mm-hmm. um, had mentioned to me in our correspondence, there was a cholera outbreak, a set of cholera outbreaks more in more recent years, which maybe opens a window into how that health system has evolved, mm-hmm. um, particularly as the country's political economy has evolved Changes. in modern mm-hmm. Southeast Asia. So talk a little bit about that episode and what that reveals. Yeah, so this is really, um, this is a big focus of the book is these anomalous outbreaks of cholera in North Vietnam, specifically centering on Hanoi, the national capital, starting in 2007 and going through about 2011. Um, Right at the moment when Vietnam is being promoted to middle income country status and receiving all these accolades is like a success story of transition from socialism, right? So that's not a situation where you'd expect to see what I bet your listeners are familiar with this qualification, like cholera is a disease of poverty or disease of underdevelopment. Um, Vietnam wasn't supposed to be poor or underdeveloped, especially not in the national capital at that time. So um, I got interested in those outbreaks because I was in Hanoi around the time that that was happening. And I wanted to chase them ethnographically in research, which ended up being very interesting and also somewhat challenging because the politics of those outbreaks were um, pretty sensitive. And so what I end up arguing in the book about what those episodes really reveal is one, um, the, the loss of capacity in urban water and sanitary infrastructure. So like big expensive things that need to be invested in regularly by a state. Um, those have not kept pace with the rapid economic development that's taking place in Hanoi, Um, the mass movements of population into Hanoi, for example, their urbanization is really something. And the city has not really been able to continue providing, I argue, um, like all the sort of basic necessities that a developed developed country should be offering its population. Um, But that too is a very, like that's a very politically challenging assertion to bring. So what the state really wanted to say caused cholera was was totally different. They really wanted to shed light on um, the allegedly, you know, backwards or like uncivilized behaviors of socially marginal groups, like their bad choices. Um, And again, I think that's very politically telling that, you know, this sort of like neoliberal understanding of where disease comes from is like, is getting all this traction with these outbreaks. I would say though that um, the story of COVID is really different in a way that mm-hmm. I've found very interesting to follow. Well, uh, and let's, let's come to that, but just one quick follow-up. I mean, just in terms of, of understanding that kind of discourse from the outside, um, how, are you able to track dissenting voices. So, you know, people who might be arguing that, no, actually, this is a failure of the government um, to keep up with health um, as promised by the ideological commitments of of the state. I mean, so to call out what you said, which is a sort of marginalized groups as the as the cause of of this epidemic, which might actually be showing um, that the state is now more invested in capital development than it is in infrastructure development. And that's a hard charge Mm -hmm. to bring 
I'm not sure how one brings a charge like that in Vietnam. Um, there's a lot of blogging in Vietnam and there were some doctors, scientists, and I think maybe informed concerned lay people who blogged very critically about those outbreaks and what they believed they revealed. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't really know what happened to those folks. Blogging in Vietnam is very sensitive and bloggers over recent years have faced like serious jail time for bringing comparable accusations. And, um, you know, I, I, it's challenging for me as somebody who works there because I don't want to sound like an anti-communist, but it is, I think, noteworthy and concerning to see what happens to individuals and groups who articulate those other perspectives on what health is and what it means and what disease reveals. Is there meaningful critique that can come from the outside, uh, Vietnamese expatriate community or, or Vietnamese nationals who live close by in other parts of East and Southeast Asia? or, or... I think it depends more on administrations. And I would say mm -hmm. under Trump that Vietnam's you know, current powers felt very emboldened to, you know, to violate the human rights of dissident journalists and other mm -hmm. figures. Um, there's a pretty prominent case of someone who was arrested right after a, like a high level meeting between Vietnam and the US that was on human rights. Um, and a few hours after that wrapped up, they took this woman into custody. She's a very prominent journalist, publisher, um, a vocal critic of the state. And um, she's still waiting to receive charges, I believe. She's been in prison since October. So um, it's tough. I'm not sure that outside individuals, I'm not sure that outside academics can do very much to um, to push those trajectories. Did you come into this work as a as an anthropologist of Southeast Asia or of Vietnam and, and the health case presented itself as a way into that into that world or the other way around? Or mm -hmm. I guess I'm asking sort of your your research or origin story here to a certain extent because it's such a fascinating combination of problems to bring together in one study. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I came to Vietnam as a medical anthropologist first. And as an as someone who is interested in late and post-socialism, um, I originally thought that I'd work in the former Soviet Union for my grad dissertation. And that ultimately ended up seeming less feasible and maybe less rewarding professionally, ultimately, mm. even though I'm, I'm very, very fond of like Russian language and culture. Um, and at that time, it was still kind of early moments for the anthropology of Vietnam, which has now picked up significantly and is like a, just a fascinating research area. So anybody who's listening, who's like looking for dissertation topic, I encourage you to look at medical anthropology or anthropology broadly of Vietnam.
Well, we'll we'll put them you're in your direction. And just a, uh, a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking today about COVID, about public health more generally in Vietnam with anthropologist Martha Lincoln, who's just made the pitch uh, for more anthropo- medical anthropologists and anthropologists to work in that in that space. So let's talk about COVID and what you've been tracking in Vietnam throughout the pandemic. Again, sort of just however you want to you want to take it. I'm impressed by that low death count. Yeah, it's um. I think I lost you, Scott. Sorry about that. Um, this okay. whole situation of the problems I was having yesterday, StreamYard has served COVID calls very well, but I think they've got a lot of users now, and, and we've had a little trouble in the last couple of days. Sorry for that disruption, but wanted to make the pivot to talking about Vietnam and in COVID. Right. Um, so this has been a fascinating case study, just I think a really remarkable story to this point. Um, overall, Vietnam's pandemic response has gone so well. Although um, things are looking just a little bit different now. And so by way of background about that, um, Vietnam pursued a zero COVID strategy, which still really just impresses me so much. Um, So lower middle income country, uh, long land border with China, um, estimated by global indices to be, you know, not particularly strong in the event of emerging disease. And they just, they just really went for it. Um, and through 2020, I think they hewed really close to zero COVID. Like they had three waves, but calling them waves is even a bit of a misnomer because these were like hundreds of cases. That said, they caused a lot of public concern um, and concern among the health authorities who absolutely took COVID like deadly seriously and did not wait and see did not hope for the best, did not assume um, that they were going to be fine. They really just from like the very earliest moments gathered all the information that they could and then acted on it. Um, So real political will to control an outbreak. Um, Since the end of April, they've been experiencing a fourth wave. And that probably has made up some like 97 or 98% of their current total of cases, which is like 30,000, I believe, maybe just a little under 30,000. And so while 30,000 cases doesn't sound like a lot of cases to Americans because of our experience of, you know, terrible failure, that's, I think, been very hard for Vietnam to assimilate. I think morale has been really challenged by this last wave. And I think, um, you know, it's unfortunate that the Delta variant is so contagious because up until this point, their NPIs, their non-pharmaceutical interventions were so effective. Mm-hmm. Their quarantine of literally millions of people, their contact tracing in a very thoroughgoing way, um, and their patient care for infected individuals was just remarkable. And if there had not been a more transmissible variant, I think they'd still be sitting really well. We might still say that they're sitting pretty well, but they're in the process as of this last week of locking down Ho Chi Minh City, very big, very big and densely populated city in a quite stringent way. So people are not going out at all. Um, And their vaccination rollout has been 
just so-so. Unfortunately, they haven't had the supply. So they had a big push at the start of July. They have now given some 4 million first doses to folks, but it was just like a like 10 or 20,000 prior to that point. And I think that they will probably be having vaccines trickling in slowly over the rest of the year. But that's a, a big country. They have 96 million people. They need to vaccinate a lot of people, unfortunately. So this um, zero COVID strategy was really, as you said, I mean, this was about controlling the border, I guess. This was about distancing, masking, all of those, that, all of those pursued simultaneously. From a very early moment. And mm. they, I don't think that the phrase like Swiss cheese disease control was being used then, but that was really what they were doing was multiple simultaneous NPIs lined up alongside each other such that, you know, any hypothetical virus would have a great challenge moving from one person to another. And what about the issue of data and sort of transparency, given particularly the context of what we were talking about, yeah. um, you know, an authoritarian state, which, um, as we've seen in other parts of the world, um, that can enable very robust public health response and mm -hmm. quickly. Um, and we look what happened in Wuhan, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, I get really, really anxious when I look at COVID statistics being reported out of countries like the where absolutely, or, you know, Myanmar, all of a sudden, no cases. I mean, so you start to worry just about the validity of that, of that data. Um, yeah. How does that look to you in Vietnam? Yeah. So data transparency in public health in Vietnam is an issue. Um, and there's some published work about this. Alfred Montoya is an anthropologist of HIV in Vietnam principally, who's written about the challenges around incompleteness of data sets, um, you know, really important data sets. And we, we don't necessarily have um, full capture or total transparency in some ways. Um, there's a chapter in my book about the history of um, collecting and using public health statistics in Vietnam and how politically and ideologically charged that has been, you know, both by actors outside of Vietnam and by the Vietnamese state. And so, like, it's true. Um, there has historically been reason for concern. But in this instance, Vietnam has been exceptionally transparent and forthcoming with its COVID data. And while there have been allegations that Vietnam was hiding cases or hiding deaths, I think that um, those have started to be less commonly heard. Um, last spring and last summer, there was a lot of that kind of chatter on social media about how, you know, Vietnam was, as one economist put it, a rotten apple of COVID data. Um, those allegations just haven't held up. Um, and I think this last wave of cases should be like finally now putting to rest the suspicion that Vietnam is not bringing out all of its cases. It seems like it's really bringing out all of its cases so much so that, you know, over this whole experience, people have known if there were, you know, individuals in their communities who had been exposed. People know if they've been in the same space as somebody who's sick. Um, so I think the transparency has been remarkable 
in fact. Um, when I spoke to somebody at the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit last year, I did ask that question because I was wondering as well, like, how does it look to you there? Um, so this is a foreign epidemiologist. And he said, you know, we're, we're based at the, the reference hospital where they take COVID cases. Mm -hmm. If there were hidden cases coming in, we would know. Mm. And there haven't been. So I think that there's, there are, you know, critiques to be developed around the state's handling of COVID, but that's probably not the critique to bring. I wonder, um, you know, just sort of building on that, do you think that's some, somehow some kind of a turning point for the Vietnamese state and the way that it deals with transparency, or you have to bracket COVID as some sort of special case because of exceptional its global... Case. Yeah. I think it's and an exceptional is, case. Is that because the eyes of the world are, are focused so much on on the way every country is reporting this data because it affects its neighbors so much. I'm asking you just to speculate here. I know you probably haven't yeah. had time to write about that, but well, it it would be yeah. You'd really have to chase those questions in a very thoughtful and ambitious way. I think to really answer them, I do suspect that you know the eyes of the world and the kind of like the natural comparisons between countries and regions that arise are part of the story of why Vietnam has been so forthcoming with those data. But I also think that this is really like an economic calculation and that Vietnam mm. sized up this pathogen correctly from a really early moment, saw this as something that could shut the whole country down, completely level its economy, you know, for a long time to come, if not permanently. And accordingly, you know, configured policy that would make that possibility minimized. And, um, what I'm seeing Vietnamese writers suggest to this point is that this is not heralding like a new era in Vietnamese governance and transparency and, you know, like democracy, like they're not anticipating that. It would be a nice surprise, um, but I think it would also be a lot to hope for right now. It's really, I just coming back to what you were observing before about the, the pride in in the um, keeping the death count so low and the case count so low, and then this fourth wave, which has been distressing there. I think that's, I'm in South Korea right now. And, and I think it's, it's hard for people in the United States in Europe, North America generally, um, who've had such dealt with such staggering numbers. Yeah. It, it's hard to, I mean, it's I put it this way. It's easy to kind of look at those numbers, 132 deaths. I think I read at the top. Yep. Um, and say, well, why are we even talking about these places? Why, you know, South Korea, just over 2,000 deaths. Why are we even talking about those places? But, but from within the context, as you presented it in Vietnam, um, zero to over 100 or a few to over 100 quickly really matters because it indicates mm -hmm. that something about this strategy is eroding a little bit. And um, I think that that problem of numbers is one that uh, has confounded the way people think um, about the more more important issues that are at play here. So I'm really glad that you that you brought that out. Yeah, the problem of numbers is something that I've been thinking about a lot too. Um, and I feel like in the United States, we really had such a a disturbing experience of moving from a situation where the numbers were too small to matter, you know, like too few to care about or feel sad about to a situation where the, we had had too many deaths to process. 
And there was never a moment, I don't think there was ever a moment where we all sort of collectively stopped and said, you know what, this is very concerning. This is very sad. This is very bad news. Like think about the families. I think we really missed that window. Um, and something about, you know, the sentiment that we attach to, um, to numbers has really muddied our vision of what is going on. I think that's, I think that's right. I think that's, that's well said. I hadn't also thought about, I mean, shifting topic here just slightly for a second, but that shift of going from most communities knowing no cases or a few and no deaths in America in March to the brutal April of 2020 and the rapidity of that somehow right. moved us through a phase that we should have been in longer to be able to make sense, I think, um, of what right. was happening. And uh, I'm just riffing off what you were saying because you're you're allowing me to think about this a little bit. Um, I, if there's any thoughts you had about that, I'd be really interested. We're going to talk more about the U.S. in a minute. Yeah, one thought, which is just that Vietnam, I think, really you know, like spread out those moments, like their March to their April, so to speak. Mm -hmm. They had a long period of time for collective sense-making around what was happening and what it meant and how they wanted to feel. And, you know, like I think too that those deaths have been grieved collectively. They've been recognized as sad, untoward events um, and ominous events that potentially portend more deaths. Um, and I, I do agree that this sort of, you know, our, our failures in the U.S. really compressed that experience in such a way that we could not um, make sense in terms of policy or in terms of our kind of collective sentiment. Deaths from COVID in Vietnam, are they um, grieved in any sort of public way? Is the public invited in some way into that process or have they been handled, as far as you know, have they been handled very personally and individually? I, I do see, you know, obituaries noted. I don't know about services. That's a great question. My guess might be that those are privately tendered by families. Hmm. Let's follow up on the economic impacts part. I was really compelled by your explanation. Uh, and I think it holds very well uh, across East, East Asia, frankly, that mm -hmm. um, countries took a hard look at their economies and said, this can wipe out a generation's worth of development um, in 12 months, and we're not going to let that happen. And so these non-pharmaceutical interventions um, are not just about life and death of citizens. They're about the economic life and death of the state. I, I don't want to overstate it, but that seems to be kind of the frame that you're moving us into. And I'm curious, following up on that, has that been true with Vietnam? Because lockdowns are still expensive mm -hmm. and they are quarantines, expensive. quarantines cost. So what is that? What's the economic picture been like in practice? Yeah. So just as you suggest, I think, you know, a primarily NPI driven response is going to be cheaper upfront. And um, from what I understand, there hasn't been a lot of investment in medical technology, even so in patient care, things like ventilators, crash carts, those have been manufactured for export actually. Um, because again, like if you manage a pandemic well on the front end, you won't have as many critical patients on the back end. Um, but you're right too that lockdowns are costly. Um, 
Placing people in quarantine is costly. Closing businesses, closing borders, all very costly. Um, the Vietnamese state has provided really strong stimulus funding, although that's not necessarily available to everybody equally. Um, I'm seeing recently some reports about how more politically, socially, and economically marginalized groups are, you know, not surprisingly going to be the least able to access those kinds of funds or opportunities. So that's, you know, that's unfortunate. But net net for Vietnam as a country, they're seeing amazing economic growth. They are one of the fastest growing economies in the Asia Pacific region as projected this year, um, something like 6.6% GDP growth. Um, so the Financial Times called this Vietnam's breakout moment and other kind of like, like neoliberal appraisals from the West are, are very complimentary. Like people are very happy with what Vietnam is doing. So I do see um, like a somewhat sinister dimension to this approach to pandemic control, which is that the population is being compelled to health. If I can say that without sounding like a crazy anti-vaxxer, that there's, you know, a sense of, you know, the economic health of the nation being totally tied to the physical soundness of the population. And, you know, that's, that's a concerning dimension of life politics in ways, I think, although infinitely preferable to what we have here in the United States, I would add. Sure, but and but so complicated because then it's a it's a compulsion by the state for an all-in public health response, which is tied to GDP. In, in a sense, I'm not sure if those are the mm -hmm. measures that are then passed back mm -hmm. to the public to say, "Hey, look, we beat the virus, and this means we can grow in this way." I'm sure it's it's well. How is wealth discussed in Vietnam? How is the successful growing economy? you know, for a, a working class person in Ho Chi Minh City, how is how is that presented to them? Yes. Um, so this is something, let me find the name of this report that might be of interest to readers potentially. Um, I think it's the Mekong Development Research Institute. Yes, that's it. Um, so uh, they conducted a big survey with um, Vietnamese populations. I'm not entirely sure where asking for their comments on response to the pandemic. And those populations agreed with the government's priority on saving lives instead of ensuring immediate continued economic growth. And that is something that the state said up front, you know, we're gonna prioritize life and health over the economy right now. Um, and the interpretation of that you know, survey outcome was that because Vietnamese citizens are used to the country's poor welfare system, people benefiting little from the government's economic and financial policies in tough and easy times anyway, during the pandemic, it just makes sense for the government to focus on helping people maintain their existence, regardless of whether their existence is rich or poor, comfortable or uncomfortable, free mm. or unfree. So that's, I mean, that's very complex. Mm. Absolutely. Well, and and so just to think of, of, about the economy, but a little bit more broadly, how does Vietnam's economy, uh, how interconnected is it with its immediate neighbors? And and so that's also a public mm -hmm. health question is how integrated have they been in their response with their immediate mm -hmm. neighbors who have also had low compared to the West, who've also had low 
case and death counts from COVID. Yeah. Um, I mean, Vietnam is very, has very tense relationships with China in, I think, all sectors. But China is also Vietnam's biggest trading partner. So I think this has been a moment that's been very fraught for their, you know, diplomatic configuration. Originally, Vietnam did secure its border when the first reports from Wuhan were coming out. And now, in turn, with the surge they're having primarily in South Vietnam, China is shutting its border too. So um, as far as trade goes, I'm not totally sure. This is not my precise area of expertise, but I would say in general, Vietnam has been a pretty good neighbor in Southeast Asia. Um, their control of the pandemic, I think has helped case rates stay low in Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand. And Vietnam has also been giving um, medical and humanitarian aid to those neighboring countries. I think setting itself up for a future position of leadership in in the region and in ASEAN probably. Hmm. That's really fascinating insight and, and a tense one there again with the sort of inheritance, uh, colonial inheritance, 20th century, you know, inheritance of war, these economies all, you know, still sort of individually building themselves up. But regionally, if one country manages the pandemic very poorly, that's going to have a health and, and economic impact across those borders quite quickly, I would presume. Absolutely. Um, the countries in, in Southeast Asia right now that are having the hardest time are in maritime Southeast Asia, so they don't share land borders. But I imagine that there's maybe still population movement between Indonesia and the Philippines, for example. Um, in general, I mean, Southeast Asia has done really pretty well up until this point. Again, I think the picture is changing somewhat for those other countries right now, too. Just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls and been talking about COVID in Vietnam with anthropologist Martha Lincoln. Martha, let's let's shift the topic a little bit because not only are you an expert in Vietnam and publishing um, this book, but you've been writing about the United States uh, as well and, and other Western countries. I want to give a quote from a piece that you published in Nature last year, which I think everyone should check this out. Um, and I'm just going to read a little bit. You talk about, so it's, it's about hubris. Um, and it's a fascinating take on the pandemic. You write, the pandemic provides a natural experiment on the public health effects of hubris. Vietnam never presumed it would have special protection against disease. Its leaders took no chances in responding to reports of a strange pneumonia in Wuhan, China, and acted decisively to quarantine, test, and trace the contacts of early cases. In other parts of the piece you talk about, you put that in distinction to, let's say, the way the United States reacted. And and you talk in there about American exceptionalism and exceptionalism, nationalist exceptionalism in countries. Um, I, I want to get you to expand on that a little bit. I mean, as a historian of the United States, and one of the very first things we ever read in graduate school is always Frederick Jackson Turner's Frontier Thesis. And we're, we're taught to read it critically, of course, and, and we do read it critically. But that idea of exceptionalism is a very deep, deeply rooted in the United States. And it's almost always 
positioned as something, I, I mean, I think even across the ideological spectrum, it's often positioned as something that's, yeah, it might have its excesses, but it is something that's, that's served us well in the United States, right? I think that, I think that goes across party lines. Absolutely. And you're, and you're suggesting we need to look closely at that in terms of how well it's serving us in time of a global pandemic. Yeah, that's the argument. Um, essentially, what I wanted to say with that piece was that exceptionalism tends to create a kind of assumption of innate superiority, right? And that can be a real liability in an emerging situation for which we have no ready defense. You know, like Americans, like everybody in the world, are not immunologically prepared to confront a, a novel virus. Um, but A, I, I'm not sure that that was clearly understood from an early moment, including by you know members of the last administration. And B, I think there's also a sense, and this is very poorly founded as well, that epidemics, pandemics, you know, disease outbreaks are things that happen to other countries and that somehow there's some magic way in which they cannot happen here. Um, and the, um, the consequences of that outlook, you know, particularly in the executive branch, particularly um, in the Trump administration, were really, you know, they really set us on a path from a very early moment where we could not proactively respond, despite the long investments that our country has made in building up, you know, a biosecurity industrial complex. Like we should have we should really actually have materially been prepared. And that preparation was just so, um, it was as if we thought, you know, having, having kind of done that at some point, we wouldn't actually need to use it. Or that, you know, having the technological capacity that we think Americans naturally have would, would be enough. And that we wouldn't have to do anything, you know, as, as tedious as wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. Just to follow up on on that a little bit, I mean, as an anthropologist, you have a keen eye for nuances of culture, uh, and and so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that because presented with the obvious failure, well, I guess if exceptionalism was supposed to make sure that people didn't die unnecessarily of a disease, let's take that premise. I'm not sure that's a good premise in America anymore, but let's say that was part of exceptionalism. Then you have to explain what happened. And the explanations have been all over the map. I mean, from policymakers, but also from people more broadly in the culture. Um, mm -hmm. And let me just suggest a couple and get your feedback. I mean, were you surprised in that sense that um, that Donald Trump pointed to outsiders and said, the only way things can actually go wrong here is if somebody else sabotages us? I mean, it seems like that's another way to think about his anti Asia anti-China rhetoric throughout the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a, a quite clear connection that you just drew between the sense of Americans as like inherently good, superior, um, capacitated, technologically forward-looking, um, wealthy, developed people, you know, as if those were just like native attributes in, in America or in white America. Um, 
if you accept that, then there cannot be, you know, like a scientific explanation for a mass disease event. You have to bring in um, ideas about race and culture somehow. So, yeah, it does. It didn't surprise me that that was like a, a default explanation. It didn't surprise me either that um, the sort of natural properties of the virus were inculpated, you know, with very little attention to and very little desire to think about, you know, well, what about our polity? What about our social order? What about the way people are forced to live in this country could be, um, you know, a contributor to the outcomes that we saw? The, the other take on it, which we have to sort of pause, I think, sometimes and really take stock of what this means for the future of the United States is, is just, just outright deny that it's true. Just to say, no, the United States is on a unique historical adventure as a country. And when bad things happen now, the impulse from some seems to be to say, they're actually, they're not, they're not happening. Couldn't be. Yep. Can't accept it. Um, yeah. A lot of us, I, you know, and I think it's hard, you know, for academics who don't really specialize in American society to say, but I do think that it's fair probably to hazard that Americans are very deeply conditioned to see America as the best country in the world, no matter what, you know, like nothing would convince Americans that this was not the best country in the world. So that kind of cognitive, I'm not sure what to call it, like that kind of um, cognitive dissonance, I guess, that many of us carry is is pretty, um, it's pretty insulating. What was the response to the to the piece? I mean, to put something like that up in a as an op-ed in a local newspaper is one thing. To put it in Nature, uh, you didn't hold back, did you? Yeah, no, I. It was funny. Like two things about the response about that piece were funny. One was um, that I got a lot of very appreciative emails from, like, real scientists. So like heart mm -hmm. surgeons, you know, and like very um, rural communities in the US were writing me like the, just the loveliest, most generous email saying that they really appreciated the argument. So that was kind of a shock. But two, um, probably the most commonly repeated comment on social media was like, why didn't you include my country in your short list of mm. countries? Like we're so exceptionalist in Sweden, in Spain, in Greece. Um, and I, I thought, huh. And this sort of speaks to the looseness of the frame a bit. You know, probably every country does have some national myth of specialness and exception. But what's really dangerous about the myths of specialness and exception that we have here in the US, in the United Kingdom, in Brazil, and, you know, maybe in a handful of other really powerful countries is like, we have the, um, the power to try to bring those exceptionalist ideas into reality um, where they do not work. Yeah, I, I think to me it also speaks to this tension, which I'm not sure can be resolved between um, a global phenomenon, which is then sort of understood and reported nationally. And so, like when I read the 
the statistics every day on COVID calls, I'm reading national level statistics. So you can get lower than that. You can read state level statistics or county or city level statistics, certainly. But then the nation state is the is the is the epidemiological data vessel that we deal with yeah. for coping with something which is global and confounds national boundaries at every turn. And so your piece made me sort of think about that yet again, that we need better strategies to talk about this as a global phenomenon, even though the mm -hmm. health response, and so does that mean we need better global health response? Maybe, or, or the other, maybe we need much more hyper-local health responses to move us away from this idea mm -hmm. that it's the nation that's defining and I'm just riffing here, but I mean, those are things that this piece once again made me confront my own unwillingness to push back against that container because it's frankly easy. That's the way the data is there for me. That's the way that the politics break around it. But I want I want out of that somehow. Yeah, um, this is a bit unrelated, but something I'm seeing in Asian studies scholarship that I think is very interesting is a turn away from the container of the nation state, you know, the history of the nation state or like the economy of the nation state and a broader um, investigation of transborder phenomena or transregional phenomena, even asking not so much like what's in the container, but like what's moving, where, how. Um, Probably a tough sell for the general public, I have to say, you know, like it takes a certain curiosity to want to know what those big trends are. At the same time, though, maybe not, you know, maybe maybe you could interest the public in questions like that, that go beyond, um, you know, political borders. Just one further implication of this argument for the United States is that and this is, goes to a pretty dark place, but you write about it in another article I'd like to, to discuss, which is that, um, yes, the United States is exceptional. And yes, the deaths have happened. And yes, that's just part of it. That's just part of what it means um, to be safe and secure and economically prosperous in the modern world is you've just got to take the hit. And this is a, an article that you published um, titled Necrosecurity, Immunosupremacy, and Survivorship in the Political Imagination of COVID-19. So here, I mean, there's so many concepts in this piece that were new to me, um, and I'm going to put the link up so that people can grab it, and they've got to read this piece. I, I'm just going to read one, one line from it. You write, what explains such widespread lack of reverence for those who've died? You're talking about the U.S. here. What work is accomplished by diminishing the significance of death and the risks of a potentially fatal pathogen. I, so those are the questions that frame the piece. Mm. And I wonder if you could go a little further with how you came up with this idea yeah. and what you conclude. Yeah, so um, thanks so much for the mention. This was um, an essay that's part of a special issue in open anthropological research, which is a new open access journal in anthropology. And I just wanna give them great. like a moment of our time because I think they're great. Um, the impetus for this essay, well, I would say this, um, as an anthropologist, I see death and discourse about death as a site where we do a lot of ideological work. Um, so though dead people are dead, um, they're never, they're, you know, they're really never dead. And the things that we say about people who have died, and the 
you know, the ways that we handle their remains and their possessions, like the spaces we create for them, like all that stuff. And this is really cultural anthropology 101, like all that stuff is profoundly significant. It says a lot about the way we live, the way we want to live, um, you know, like what, what we believe about existence broadly. Um, and from, from the very first moments of pandemic deaths being reported in the US, I was um, alarmed to see where the rhetoric was going because really like in the Republican establishment from Trump on down and also including like alt-right social media presences, et cetera, um, there was this tremendous rush to trivialize those deaths um, and to imply that the people who were dying were not important, that they weren't valuable, that they were going to die anyway. And so that it didn't matter that they were dying. And we knew from, you know, like what little we knew from media was telling us like, these are, these are excess deaths and they are terrible. People are really, really suffering. Um, not even able to be visited by their families. And so while that could have been the discourse that got traction, you know, that this is something that we need to prevent at all costs, there was great enthusiasm actually for like multiplying these awful anonymous deaths. And so because the administration was so unwilling to take steps to control the pandemic, they had to end up saying ridiculous things like Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick in Texas, who said famously, there are more important things than living. And so, um, you know, really quickly out of the woodwork, this whole um, cultural idea of death being okay and maybe even good popped up and got a lot of power. And I should say too, it wasn't just speakers on the right, like pretty like centrist to liberal actors were advocating for reopening the state saying, you know, like people die, you know, we just have to live with the fact that people die. And it's like, yes, well, the devil certainly is in the details on how and when people die or should die. But that was all so hastily brushed away. Um, and so too, that sat with me funny because as I mentioned a minute ago, there's been so much money spent in the United States on biosecurity, you know, the sense that like exotic emerging threats are going to cross our borders and we better be prepared with like the best technology to, um, to keep our population safe. And that was so shredded under Trump. There was like no capacity and no political will to really make any of those functions follow through. And so that's what I mean by necrosecurity is the idea that we're going to secure our our lives, you know, ourselves, powerful social agents, elites, and our preferred way of life by letting other people die. That's um, yeah. I just want to linger on that for a second. I mean, it hits really hard, and it and it also is is a really important frame to help us get past the idea that. Donald Trump's a bad guy or Dan, Pe you know, this sort of individualization mm -hmm. um, to find the bad guys and the bad gals in this story and hang it on them and say, well, now that we've had an election, we can move past that. And you're pointing here to much more troubling, but 
documentable structural things in society. And, and as I read this piece, I couldn't help but think about what have turned out to be lies uh, in the form of deregulation in um, elder care health facilities and long-term residential health care facilities that people had thought were safe. Maybe they thought, maybe they didn't look too hard and scrutinized because people, Americans have an uncomfortable relationship with mm-hmm. um, you know, aging and death. And that that deregulation became very odd. The impact of that became very obvious um, by April and May of last year, um, both yes. in terms of, of the, the hardship of people not being able to go and see their families when these places went into total lockdown. Uh, and, and then also, of course, in terms of the staggering numbers of deaths. So that to me also mm-hmm. felt like that's a form of this necro security that you had mm-hmm. segregated part of our society into long-term care and that word care, though, didn't deliver. That's right. Although, I mean, we might problematize care. It's not always, um, care is not always care. I agree completely with your point that we can't just isolate problematic individuals out of the last administration and say, you know, that's the whole story. Um, unfortunately, I think these are tendencies that are deeply baked into our society. Um, regardless of, you know, the party or the people that are in power. Is there an antidote? Ah, um, that is really the question. I, I worry, I guess I worry that for practical purposes, like in my lifetime, there's not an antidote. Um, I think that there are incremental reforms that we can push for, you know, realistically in our lifetimes. Um, I think that, you know, unions are very important actually, and having um, organized workplaces would be a bulwark against some of these most, um, most problematic life and health threatening kinds of practices. Um, but two, I mean, just seeing what's happened with the distribution of capital over this last year and like how powerful, for example, Amazon has gotten, you know, deeply, deeply anti-union employers. I, I guess I worry that we're on a path that's just going to be very negative, very, very hard on folks. Were you surprised that the, um, the attempts to humanize the front pages that, list names of those who've died and the the marking of the various um, 100,000, 200,000, the, me- the metaphors that are employed, you know, as many as died in this war and that war. Um, have you been surprised or noted at all how those have worked in society to push back on this, this necro security uh, problem that you're pointing to? Yeah. Um, they, they strike me as very ambivalent. Hmm. Um, and I actually have written critically about particularly the comparisons to war because I think um, Americans, because of our situation as an imperial power, have a very amnesiac relationship to our history of abuses in wars overseas. And so we forget our foreign wars, Meaning that if we compare the pandemic to the Vietnam War, say, that means like we're basically bookmarking it as something to forget. Um, so that's something that concerns me, wow. um, maybe in a different way 
than the necrosecurity issue. But I do feel like there's a kind of, um, you know, just the way like news cycles work and the way that attention is leveraged and the way that things have to be moving quickly on always, I just feel like we haven't been able for reasons that have to do with attention economies and, you know, media ownership, we haven't been able to really sit with the enormity of these losses. And that is why they just had a thousand names on that one cover, the front page of the New York Times. It was a hundred thousand deaths, but they only made room for a thousand of them because it would be too boring to fill the entire front section. And, you know, like they would be able right. to sell ads and, um, you know, that was what yeah. we got. It was like yeah. a souvenir. We got yeah, a souvenir. It's not, it's not fundamentally disruptive. I don't feel like we could disrupt the media enough with this story to change the way that people are understanding what is happening or what has happened. That's, uh, you know, in some ways, it's a continuation of that necrosecurity point you were making. If you took time out, let's say we had a national, a single national day of mourning on a weekday, you can already imagine the pushback you would get on the somehow unassailable argument that that's bad for the economy. Sure. So we'll allow, allow Americans to mourn in their own private ways, but how could you possibly shut down the economy for a day no. to memorialize? I don't think it would go anywhere. Memorialize on your own time. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that's the, um, the impulse. And I, I can't, I, I originally hoped, I guess, that the Biden administration would do something, at least like something small and symbolic like that, like dedicate a day. But I don't think that's going to happen now. No, I've been I've been super disappointed by that. I know the backyard barbecue is not the answer to dealing with the accumulated grief of COVID nineteen. I'm sorry, but I I just want to come back to one quick thing. I mean, this conversation has been really mind expanding for me. Thank you for that. And and you just made a statement which I I think is really important, which is that if you want to be sure people are going to forget something compare it to the wars that they work so hard to forget. I had not put that together, but that's so profound. So we start comparing COVID to Vietnam or the Korean War. Or especially the Korean War, which was not that long ago. Nobody has working memory of that. Then it's, yeah, it's slated for forgetting. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a really important point. Um, we've gotten to a dark place here and we're almost out of time. So I want to kind of just in the last little point, if you'll indulge me here as we, as we conclude, but, um, this has also been a time of incredible methodological innovation for humanists and particularly mm. anthropologists. Mm. Um, and I know anthropologists, uh, don't, I mean, I know they work digitally. I know they work across distance, but we still do think about, and the, the, particularly the grad students I know really eager to get in the field um, and the pandemic has disrupted um, their their work lives and the develop their intellectual lives. Uh, what have you been impressed by or what kind of innovations have you seen that impress you or what have what ways have you had to try to become creative or cope with mm-hmm. the problem of of distance? As you yeah. do the work you do, which is so insistent on the accumulation and the analysis of culture. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I would say there's been um, really a nice kind of like Samizdat renaissance in sharing info and best practices in digital methods. Um, that happened at a really early moment in the pandemic. A lot of um, just a lot of resource sharing, and I can um, 
you know, I probably won't dig up the link fast enough, but that's out there. If people need and want those resources, they can be found. For myself, um, I did have to put some data collection on hiatus temporarily, although it's now more possible for me to conduct interviews. Um, recruiting is still a little funny because you can't go into physical spaces and like hang up a poster about your study the same way you could in the past. Um, but I'm still managing to talk to people on my current study, which is about medical crowdfunding. Um, Fieldwork in Vietnam is gonna be another story. I think um, it'll be possible, but you know the, the challenges will be significant there for a while. So getting permission to just to talk to folks, I think will be um, certainly not this year, maybe not even next, depending on, on how vaccination goes. Well, I hope you can get back as quickly as, as possible and um, wish you every success with the book and these many other projects that you've uh, got going. And I just want to remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID calls and that you actually, we've got another COVID calls uh, today. This is um, on Korea time anyway, at 7.53 a.m. here in Daejeon, South Korea, uh, later today, 5.30 p.m. Korea time, which is 4.30 a.m. tomorrow for you, Eastern time. I'll be talking with Mary Louise McLaws, who's an epidemiologist in Sydney, and we'll be talking about COVID-19 and the trajectory of the disease in Australia. And I want to thank my guest today, Martha Lincoln, for just a wide-ranging, insightful um, conversation. Learned a lot from it. Thank you so much, Martha. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm -hmm.